As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Nance. 
Some of you are thinking, why doesn't he just leave her up here to do the rest of the book? And he could just sit down. Probably not a bad idea. I'd also say that somebody is an administrative genius who always seems to plan so that I preach on the same day that Nancy's teaching Sunday school. That ensures that on the way out, she whispers to me, you better make it quick. <laughs> Easter in August. Um, yeah, it is interesting. We're preaching about Easter in August. We're doing that because we're going through the book of Matthew. This is the week that that story fell on. My own history, I was uh, raised as a good Baptist little kid, and Easter was a huge event, so huge that my father took me out the Saturday before Easter, and I got brand new clothes, the tie, just so I could dress up for Easter Sunday. It meant that early in the morning on Easter Sunday, we traveled into Brooklyn and stood outside in some field with the rest of my relatives and celebrated the sun rising on Easter morning. But I think for a second what it must be like for somebody to step into this church and hear us, as we sang this morning, say, we are part of a group that believes that over 2,000 years ago, somebody got up, they were dead, they got up and walked away from death and were alive again. That's not an easy thing to get your arms around. And I can say that I've questioned a lot of things in my life, but I think I've put resurrection questions sort of on hold, sort of in a way afraid to go near them because I didn't know what would happen. So being able to preach Easter in August has been a good thing for me. Here's what I didn't expect. I didn't expect to walk away from this with absolute certainty in the sense that, like, once I finish this morning, I'll never wonder about what happens to me after I die. I wish that could be true, but I know it won't. So I sort of banished that expectation. But I did read through the Gospels a bunch of times, and I was encouraged in faith that there is a promise of a life to come, and we're a part of that. And it's okay to walk away with a little bit of wonder still and, and question. Think about Thomas, who had the great privilege of always having his name preceded by the word doubting. Um, he demanded that, I'm not going to believe unless I can touch his body and feel the places where his scar should be. And so he does that. And immediately when that happens, he says, my Lord and my God. And it's easy to sort of wash over that remark, but this is a Jewish person calling a person who rose from the dead, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't react to him by saying, well, you could have, you know, your friends all believed. What's the story with you? You know, you, could, you had to wait for this. He just welcomes you. He said, blessed, blessed are you. Now, he also says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But he doesn't at all discipline Thomas about what happened. So I, I want you to be encouraged that, we might think, if I were alive back then, my faith would be totally different today. Well, that's, at the very least, it's presumption. And it's probably just flat out wrong. So what I'm not going to try to do today, I'm setting up all the things I'm not doing. 
But what I'm not going to try to do is undertake a point-by-point -point attempt to address all the various arguments about the historicity of this event. There are a lot of books out there that address this, and they are, they are likely to overwhelm. Just If you just go out and don't do it right now, but just Google empty tomb, and you, you'll hit more things than you care to read. History has sort of come under attack, I believe, in a lot of ways. People use it and recast it to their advantage. Unvetted truth um, to tell a different story, forms of communication that are not subject to any kind of verification. So there's a certain amount of skepticism, just generally speaking, about history. And we seem to be in a world that seems uniquely able to disregard the lessons learned from that history and turn them towards their own advantage and their own agenda. So I'm not going to try to defend all of that. But I will tell you that as I read through the Gospels in this particular section and others, two things stood out to me, two incidents that I want to draw some attention to. One is first Mary, Mary Magdalene. Nance read about that. Um, she was a follower of Jesus. It's said that she supported him financially. Um, she was one of many women helping the ministry out of their own means, it says in the New Testament. She witnessed the crucifixion. She witnessed Joseph of Arimathea placing Jesus in the tomb so he knew where he lay. She stood outside that tomb and waited. All four Gospels record that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb when the Sabbath was passed or on the first day of the week. Mark tells us that Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene, who then told his other follower, her, the other followers that he was alive, but they didn't believe her. So if you were to pick a person in that era, and, and Mark referred to this in his sermon as well, if you were to pick a person to start this kind of revolution in that era, in that context, you would not pick a woman. You would not pick Mary Magdalene. The women were not well-received in that culture, not really trusted in a lot of ways. But the difference is that Jesus' treatment of women in the New Testament is marked by love, respect, and kindness. He welcomed them into following him. And he entrusted them with other truths about himself. So we have this unusual start to this revolution from Mary Magdalene. Then the second thing that I, I read, and I read this further on, was um, from 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Cephas, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. These are the words of Paul. The phrase that stuck out for me out of that was, most of whom are still living. And Paul's sort of, in a way, challenging people. If you don't believe it, there's about 500 people out there who saw this thing. Go talk to them. Most of them are still alive. So that's just a small taste of like reading the Gospels, sort of stepping back and realizing, okay, what does the gospel say about the resurrection and, and the historicity of it? These are just two of a lot of incidents recorded of Jesus appeal, appearing to people after his resurrection. 
And this appearing in his resurrection became the core of a movement that started over 2,000 years ago. Think about this. This was a revolution. It was a cataclysmic change in the perspective of thousands of Jewish people on life. It converted Jewish people from not even being able to say the name of God to worshiping Jesus as God. What started that other than somebody coming back from the dead? So as you, you know, and so this is a challenge to the, the kids in the church who are going to grow up with this. It's, it's important to think about. It is the critical element of Christianity. There would be no such thing as this church or Christianity without that resurrection. And if you can't understand it, it demands a plausible historical explanation. And so it is important. N.T. Wright says, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb in the meetings or the sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting that kind of thing. No conversion experience would have invented it, no matter how guilty or forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. One last thought on this first point. In an article for the New York Times entitled, For Easter, the Strangest Story Ever Told, this is by Ross Duthat, he talks about the gospel narrative and how in the past, in a mainly sort of Christian nation as as we were, so much of the population declaring themselves as members of a church or a worship a worship setting, it has declined so much that it has the possibility to change the way people read the Gospels. There's a book called Losing Our Religion by Russell Moore, and he cited a 2021 survey that showed the number of Americans affiliated with the church or house of worship is about 47% in 2021. It was about 68% 20 years ago. So that, that picture of people not getting their picture of the resurrection from some institution, but from perhaps from reading the Gospels. Duthat concluded with, what is starting to happen is a reading of the Gospels that is naive. And he means by naive, just sort of, there's no preconceived arguments going into it. And perhaps an acknowledgement of the immediacy and mystery, their lapel-shaking urgency, their mixture of the mundane and the impossible. The Gospels are at the very least the strangest story ever told. Mixture of the mundane and the impossible, the very strangest story ever told. I know in my own interactions with people lately, I sort of have to step away from the church and say, you know what? I know the church has plenty of problems. It always has. Perhaps it's one of the greatest testimonies that of the resurrection because it still exists with all these problems. But be that as it may, you sort of have to get people to step away from those arguments about the church and what's wrong with it and, and everything else and say, no, just focus on who Jesus is. What do you think of him? That's all you have to do. You can make that church decision next or decide that you're, you know, whatever that, wherever that leads you in terms of seeking community. The first thing is, what do you think of Jesus, the person, the things he said, what do you believe about that? Strip it down to that. And I think that's sort of where Duthat was getting at, too. People are getting, now that they're sort of getting divorced from the institution, 
it's an opportunity to do a more, again, naive reading of the Gospels. My second point is that it matters. The resurrection matters. And you knew I would get slide a really depressing quote in my sermon outline, right? And, and so I have. Um, it's from Leo Tolstoy. He, he wrote a confession. It's a book called The Confession. He says, why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable awaiting, that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? So when we think about the resurrection, is the issue of death being the final word is sort of it. As it relates to a lot of different things, but things that we want to matter in the end, but if they all disappear, what's the point? In, in his book, Life Worth Living, Miroslav Volf states, the prospect of death shadows every moment of life. He wrote a book about finding meaning in life. He says, the prospect of death shadows every moment of life. In effect, it challenges any view of morality or justice. If death is the final curtain, we have no anchor to eternal things or truth. Justice and moral behavior are sort of up for grabs. Paul declares that. He says, without the resurrection, we're fools. Why would we go down this path if not for the fact that in the end it matters? It matters that Jesus rose from the dead. And those in our concepts of what's right and what's wrong and justice are eternal. They're not ending with this life. And so it, without that, we just don't. We don't have any place to go. So what are some of the ways we can deal with that? Well, you can look at, you can sort of want to become immortal by achieving something great, right? People will remember you forever. Of course, that's not true, but I, I saw Henry V a number of times this summer because I had grandchildren that were in the play. So you, you can't see it once. You have to see it every time they do it. But there's a great speech from Henry V about St. It's called the St. Crispin speech. You probably, you might have heard about it. But basically, they're going into war against the French, and they're totally outnumbered. The likelihood is they're all going to die. And so Henry V gives this great speech. He says, if we are marked to die, we are now to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. Wouldn't that just get you out of bed in the morning? Old men forget, old men forget, and can't read. Yet all shall be forgot. But he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names be in their flowing cups, freshly remembered. He poses the, th the thought that if you go into this battle, even if you don't live, people will remember you forever. And that's really a great thing. I don't know how you feel about that, but it doesn't. It doesn't address the issues. I'm, uh, I'm sure a number of you have seen Oppenheimer, the movie. Actually, and I'm just saying this because I want to be pretentious, but I read the book first. <laughs> <laughs> so I've successfully become pretentious. The, um, but what I was amazed at was that, that moment when they say, we're not sure what's going to happen. We're going to set this thing off, and for all we know, it can never stop once we start it, and it will destroy this planet. 
So the, somebody who's in charge of this goes, well, what's that percentage of that happening? And he goes, 1%. And he says, well, can we get to zero? And that doesn't stop these people from setting this bomb off. It justifies all the ways I felt as a kid. Because I'm old enough to have done duck and cover drills in the basement of my middle school. The most ridiculous drill of all time, as if a nuclear bomb being dropped on us was going to be, I was going to be protected by putting my head in my hands and then crouching down. But I grew up thinking every plane, every plane that flew over where I lived was bringing the bomb. And I lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis and sat there going, all right, this is the, why would I get up in the morning and do my homework? I'm, I'm serious. Why, why pursue anything if this is what my life is headed towards, ultimate destruction? And it hasn't gone away. We have more nuclear weapons poised to be shot by somebody who gets us an itchy trigger finger in this world than, than we can imagine. So the destruction of the planet is sort of another way to handle the fact that it matters. In our family, my father-in-law happens to, we, we experience it too, right? My father-in-law was 55 years old when he had brain cancer. And he died just four months after it was diagnosed. And I remember being in his room one of the last nights, probably was the last night he was alive, and he, and he said this, he said, I haven't done anything. Of course, we're sitting there thinking, you have five kids around the bed. At that time, two husbands, a few grandchildren. We're thinking, well, that's not exactly accurate. Or, but, but you know, in his head, that fear of dying, and, and this is a man who did outdoor preaching, he, he was a strong believer, but still that moment of it matters. It matters. Death doesn't go away, and that pain is not unreal. It's a real pain. Last point. Somebody go out and tell Nancy I'm almost over. Um, we have Good Friday and Easter, and then Saturday is just sitting there in the middle where we wait. The cataclysmic events leading up to that day just sort of Give us a day of rest on Saturday. I, have, I left. A, I put a poem in your. The second thing always to be expected of me, a depressing quote and a poem. And it's by Elizabeth Rooney. She says, "A curiously empty day, as if the world's life had gone underground. The April sun warming dry grass makes pale spring promises, but nothing comes to pass. Anger relaxes into despair, as we remember our helplessness. Remember him hanging there." We have purchased the spices, but they must wait for tomorrow. We shall keep today for emptiness and sorrow. After the death of his wife, Joy Davidson, C.S. Lewis wrote, it's hard to have patience with people who say there is no death or death doesn't matter. You might as well say birth doesn't matter. We move, in our traditions, we move kind of quickly past Easter in a way. We build up pretty well to it. We sort of celebrate Lent informally a lot of times. We get to Good Friday. We're, we're good on Good Friday. And, and Monday, Thursday, sometimes it's in our calendar, most of the time for us. 
Christmas gets preceded by four weeks of Advent, unless you were a Baptist. But, you know, in the Anglican Church, some of you will go, yeah, he's talking Anglican. Um, in the Anglican Church, you know how many weeks they continue Easter after Easter? Eight. Right up until Pentecost. It's Easter week two, three, four, five, six, seven, Pentecost. And there's something about doing that that makes sense, right? That focuses us back on the fact that it's, it is the crucifixion that is so important in terms of saving us. But the method for us becoming and participating in that ending life is the resurrection of Christ. And sometimes we stop short of that. Every religion has some concept of life after death. But when you go to the book of Romans, the description and the metaphor about dying is that of birth. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The message of the resurrection from, the point, from Christianity's point of view, it's not that things are going to be leveled, destroyed, and then we'll get to some place. There's a, a rebirth happening. It's unique. It acknowledges some corporeal element. I will not pretend to explain that. I cannot explain exactly what it will look like someday. But the language of Romans is an amazing picture of being liberated from decay and we, a people who are keenly aware that we are creatures, groan for the redemption of our lives. Corinthians goes on to say, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This hope that's being presented to us in the Gospels, it does not allow for us to dismiss the gravity, the pain of death, or the endurance required to to go through pain and suffering. It's just not dismiss that and say, hey, get over it. Everything's going to be better someday. That's not the message. It actually declares that these, these events, the things that are so hard, 
the death of, a, of somebody we love, those things are so hard that they're intimately connected to the suffering of Christ and then the resurrection of Christ. They are pictures of redemption coming through what appears to be death. I've seen it so many times in our congregation and around me, lives that have been shipwrecked or, and, and survive, or relationships that have no heartbeat and come back to life, people trying to overcome illness or an addiction, or just go to the mundane stuff, overcoming the most seemingly mundane aspects of life when you're confronted with your own tendency to self-protect or have your own way, you, and you die to that and do the other thing and live to something else and are revived and born to something else. It is the survivors who become those who point us to the redemptive power of resurrection. Those who are surviving those things which at face value say, well, that seems totally wrong. But they are the ones who get to turn around and point us to redemption. My wife and I get asked often, not often, but often enough to counsel people about marriage. The reason they come to us is because they probably know that our marriage at one point was shipwrecked. They don't come to us because they think we're Aussie and Harriet. And, and, and can, I always use cultural references, which 90% of you go, who's he talking about? <laughs> they were this TV couple who had a perfect marriage. Um, anyway, I got to stop doing that. I, anyway, I've, I could go down a rabbit trail right now how many times I've done that. The, um, they don't come to us for that reason. They come because they know, you guys are still married? OK, I got to find out how that happened. Because I'm going through that. We're going through that. We need to see somebody who's gone through that. Somebody suffering does not call up somebody who's never been sick and say, gee, help me through this. No, they call up the people who are going through exactly what they're going through. And they need that encouragement. It's going to come. We're being built to be those who point to the resurrection, who say, no, there's hope. It's a real hope. It's an eternal hope. And it's a real hope. There's a message. Um, well, there's, let me, this quote from, from N.T. Wright again. The message of the resurrection is that this world matters. This world matters. Take it away, and Christianity becomes wish fulfillment and ignorance, ignorant of the problems of the world. Christianity becomes wish fulfillment. The worship team can come up. I'm going to end in a second. In our daily lives, here's the message in your daily life, that mundane stuff. You can go ahead and die to all the things you think you need to make you have a meaningful life or provide for your happiness or protect you. You can be free from infusing them with that power to save you because they can't. And instead, they can become, become turned around, become the gifts you can take joy in because you've stopped trying to make them something they can never be. Don't stop at Saturday between Good Friday and Easter. Because if you stop there, you might be tempted to work a lot harder, to try a lot more, to do some penance of some sort, to do good things, to make up for the bad things you've done. None of that works. That's why the crucifixion happened. That's why redemption happens. So we're freed from those things, as it tells us in the book of Romans. Go from the Saturday before Easter into the resurrection and do it often.
Stand.